Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. We're at the point where we don't have to force deals. I think that's what everyone should take away from this podcast. If nothing else, don't force the deals. The deals will come to you. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Gino Barbaro. Gino is joining us from Knoxville, Tennessee. He is the co-founder of Jake and Gino, a vertically integrated multifamily real estate company that focuses on assets within their buy right criteria. Gino's portfolio consists of $280 million of assets under management. You really need no introduction. Gino is a returning guest on the Best Ever podcast. If you Google Joe Fairless and Gino Barbaro, his episodes will pop up. Gino, welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm great. Ash, how are you doing, brother? I'm very well, man. Good to talk to you again. You know, Gino, today, let's focus on the current climate. Things are not all that rosy for a lot of multifamily professionals investors, a lot of stories about pause preps, a lot of people sitting on the sidelines waiting for the dust to settle. What are you seeing in your world? Ash, I always like to say that there was life before Jake and life after Jake. And life before Jake, before I met Jake, I had made some really, let's say, unwise investments. I met a guy named Maserati Mike. I invested in his deal. And I made a lot of mistakes that people are making in this current climate. And if I was younger, I probably would be doing the mistakes that people are making right now. I just learned from experience that when I met Jake in 2011, I wanted to focus on one asset class. I really wanted to get really good at it. And we selected multifamily. It took us 18 months to find the first deal. It didn't happen overnight. But then when we did, it's like, what do we do to become successful? It, for us, it was the three pillars. It's the buy right, the finance right, and the manage right. Now, I had made mistakes on all of my deals on those three pillars. I violated all of them practically on every deal that I made before Jake. But once Jake and I partnered up, it's like, Jake, I'm done with doing bad deals. So for me, no deal is better than a bad deal. And over the last couple of years, 2021, 2022, we weren't on the sidelines completely, but we were doing smaller deals, a 25 unit, a 30 unit, a 40 unit. We bought a 22 unit 
portfolio that had a 12 unit, a six and a four. We just sold the six unit and the four unit in the last two months. We doubled our money. But it's one of those things where I didn't want to go in and force the hand. And I think that's what a lot of people were doing the last couple of years. Wait a minute. All these people that say stick to your buy box, stick to what you know, be hyper-focused on something. You guys are buying 10, 20 unit properties? Well, we are. And that was 2021. That was 2022. That's what the defense was giving us. I wasn't in our market of Knoxville. It was so hot. It was so competitive. My idea of buying a stabilized deal on bridge debt just didn't make sense. It was 24 months to 36 months, 195 units. We can't reposition it that quickly during COVID. And we knew rates were going to go up sooner or later. So our finance box is long-term fixed rate financing. And what happened in 2023, the deals came back. We did three deals last year. We did 132 units. We did 105 units. And in December of this past year, we closed on a 96 unit. So just having that patience and being able to say, it'll be okay. Because when you're not buying deals, Ash, there are other things that you could be doing in multifamily. You can be raising money. You can be talking to investors. You can be building your brand. Oh, and what about operations? You can be working on your business. We have 1,800 units. So all of a sudden, our income is increasing year over year, 20%. Why? Because if you're not doing deals, there's other things you can be focusing on in this business. What about pivoting to other asset classes? Going from multifamily to self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks, Some people are pivoting. Some people are like, stick to what you know. What are your thoughts? That is a very difficult question. And that is a very personal question. If your BHAG is to be the Chick-fil-A of apartments and you decide to go into RV parks, well, then what happens? All of a sudden, the operations is different. The management is different. The focus is different. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It really comes down to what a person's goals are and what they're trying to aspire to. We had the opportunity to go into RV parks. I thought it was a great niche back in 2020, 2021, 2022. But our goal wasn't just to chase yield. We want to build an enduring organization. We want to buy three to 400 really good units per year that are producing 250 to $300 in profit per unit. Will we accomplish that if we go from multifamily and then we see a shiny object and go, oh, mobile home park, great idea. But that's a different asset to manage. And oh, RV park here. I don't know what the answer is. It was just for us when we read the book, Small Giants by Bold Burlingham. You should read the book. If if you haven't read the book, it's an amazing book because it really talks about what you want I guess for your business, for your life, we wanted to be the small giants, this small little company that had culture, that had core values, that had a mission statement, that had purpose. And we didn't want to outgrow our infrastructure. And a lot of people in the last several years have really outgrown their infrastructure and gone into different lanes. Now, if you've been doing something for 10 or 15 years and you're a master at it, go at it, jump from one to another. But if you've been doing multifamily for a couple of years and you haven't found success and you think you're going to jump to RV parks and find success there, I don't know if that's true. I think become a master of one, give yourself the ability to do that. And then obviously, if you want to pivot, there's nothing wrong with it, but just give yourself some time. Would you encourage people to get into multifamily today? I would encourage people to get into multifamily whenever. We got in back in 2011. People have short memories. When I got in, there were deals on LoopNet. Nobody wanted these deals. There was no capital. Everyone was running to the exits. And Jake and Gino were going through because Jake and Gino didn't know any better. I was just hungry. I was desirous. And now if you say to anybody, would you have started multifamily? If you had the ability to start back in 2020 or 2019, would you have? Everyone would have said yes. 
Not one person would have said no, they would not have started. And I think right now we're on the precipice of another opportunity for these next 24 months. We've seen deals where there's seller financing. Debt is harder to come by. There are people in the business that are doing capital calls. They can't raise for another deal because they're having problems with these deals. And I think you can always buy real estate. You can't always sell real estate, but you can always buy it. And if you're mentally prepared to be able to sit down, educate yourself, don't look at it as a side hustle. It may be a side hustle, but if you treat this as a business and you focus on yourself, if you focus for the next five years and do what I did for five years, suck it up, put in the hard work, you will be rewarded. Gino, a lot of multifamily investors, the LPs, the passive investors, have had to deal with cash calls, deals that are underwater. They're a little bit jaded. What would you say to those multifamily LPs? And I'm sure you get those people. Hey, I'm in XYZ deal and they just pause distributions. Why would I invest in yours? Ash, that's part of life, isn't it? You can look at it one of two ways. It's a problem, but what's the opportunity from that problem? Maybe the LP should have learned the business. Maybe they should have said, how do you buy right, finance right, and manage right? You can go ahead and blame the sponsors all you want, but in some instances, when insurance doubles, when rates go up dramatically, they look at that and they can't really pivot it, and all of a sudden, the LPs are stuck holding the bag. What I would say is learn from that opportunity. What did you do wrong? What went wrong with that deal? So the next time you're presented an opportunity, you'll know how to vet that sponsor. You'll know how to vet their business plan. Was it the right market? Was it the right business plan? Was it the right hold period? Was it the right debt? Was it the right exit strategy? These are a lot of things that LPs may not even know what I'm talking about. And that's why they're losing money. Because if they had known all of this stuff, they would look at the deal and say, that deal doesn't fit with me. It doesn't align with me. But if they've paused distributions, just give it time. Let the operators work through it. I think that's at the very least. When distributions are paused, you'll see the great operators who are having trouble. They'll just rise to the top. They'll put in the effort. They'll put in the work. They'll communicate. They'll be transparent. That's what you want from your operators to say, hey, we're having rough times right now, but a lot of other people are, and this is how we're going to fix it. And that's what I would say to LPs. Reach out to those sponsors, those groups. Tell me how we're going to fix this problem. All right, look, you guys have a lot to blame. You created this problem because for <laughs> so many years, so many years, these LPs got great returns and they didn't have to do any legwork. They went out of one investment back into the next one. And here's your 20 plus percent IRRs. And now all of a sudden the returns are much lower and the deals are paused. So if you are an LP and look, I love what you're saying about give the syndicators time to correct, make sure they're transparent, but not all syndicators are being transparent and not all of them will correct. So as an LP that is in a pause distribution, what questions should they ask? Hmm. I would ask, what's the next 24 months going to look like? When are we going to start distributions again? Why did we pause distributions? What's going on? And every quarter, we have one syndication left, Ash. We're selling it out. Last syndication that we own. Every quarter, we have a webinar with our group of investors. We go over income. We go over expenses for the three months. We go over what our CapEx is for the quarter. We go over what vacant rented is, vacant unrented. We go over our uh, delinquencies on the property. We really discuss at a deep level what's going on with the property. That's what I want LPs to go on to do is what are the trailing three months? Let's talk about the 
to trailing three months? And what are we actually predicting or projecting going forward? What does that look like? I think that's what you really need to really discuss. And then obviously, what's going on with the debt, with the financing? If there is a bridge debt involved, what's going on? Is that going to reset? Are we actually going to go into foreclosure? What's going on with that? But these syndicators should have been communicating over the last six to 12 months. I'll give you a perfect example. When COVID hit, everyone thought the world was going to end. And what we did as operators with our investors is we were doing daily collections because we were scared out of our minds. Everyone forgets in March and April, are we going to collect rents? So we started tracking collections daily and we started having weekly calls on Zoom where we'd say, anyone investor wants to jump on, you can jump on, we'll discuss the deal. I think that's what you're looking for in an operator. And I hope that as a limited partner, when you're vetting out an operator, you hope that they've gone full cycle. But unfortunately, there's some really big names in the business that have gone full cycle multiple times and still have come across issues. So if you're out there and you're an LP, go out there and ask, what's going on? Let me see the numbers of what the last six months has looked like and what are we projecting for the next six months? Because you don't want to put bad money and good money with bad money. You want to see what the end goal looks like, what their exit plan is for the deal. Yeah. So there are two sets of operators, the ones that are truly transparent and are sharing the good news and the bad, and the others that rates will come down. I can get through this. I love what you're doing with essentially letting your investors into your board meetings, yes. right? That's pretty cool. We might implement that. I, I really like that. Now, throwing good money after bad, Gino, when you have a cash call, you have an opportunity to either put money in or you're getting liquidated. Mm -hmm. My advice to most people, not knowing many of the details, is be very cautious about throwing good money after bad, right? Yes. Have you seen any situations where a cash call has saved a deal or where a cash call was even successful in raising the cash? I can't personally say that I have, but if you have full faith and confidence with your operator and he's done everything I've said and they've laid out a plan and they're like, Gino, we need to raise an additional million five because we need to replace these roofs. We need to put some work into HVAC. We need to get this property up to snuff because we're going to be able to sell. We need to weather the storm. We underestimated our CapEx budget, which is pretty bad to begin with, but that does happen because all of a sudden insurance doubled and they can show a path forward, then I would do it. But if it's a syndicator that's done one or two deals and they haven't really gone full cycle, they don't have the experience, I don't know if I'd throw good against bad. But if they have a track record and they've performed for me for a couple of market cycles, I obviously would take that into consideration. Yeah, you're right. Let's see how they carry themselves. Have they always been transparent? Or are they just coming out of the woodwork now because they need a cash call? That's Ash, can advice. I just mention one thing? Anyone yeah. who's considering raising capital, just remember, it's a fiduciary responsibility. You are taking somebody's hard-earned money and you're investing their hard-earned money. To me, I think you have to treat that with the utmost respect. You are their financial steward. You're taking their money and you're trying to grow it. Now, things happen, but at the very end of the day, as we like to say, they're trusting you with the money. And that's why it's been very difficult these last couple of years to find really good deals that pencil out. And if you violate one of those three pillars and a deal goes bad, you have nobody to blame but yourself. That's why for us, it has been challenging in 2021 and 2022, even for ourselves. Because if it's my capital, we have our employees investing in our deals, Ash. We have our maintenance tech. If they've worked for us for two years or more, they're investing with us dollar for dollar. So I'm taking hard-earned maintenance tech's money who may make fifty or $60,000 a year 
they're putting 10 or 15 grand into the deal. We've got to make sure that's a good deal. I don't want to lose money for him as well as not losing money for Jake or losing my money for myself. And I absolutely don't want to work for free. This business is too hard not to make money. Yeah, that resonates a lot. And what's funny is yesterday, my LinkedIn post, I posted, people need to stop putting OPM on t-shirts and hats and bragging, where'd you get the money to buy this property? Oh, I used OPM. Like it's nothing. How about I have the trust of investors who put their hard earned money into this deal. And it's my job to make sure I do everything I can to help grow that money. Look, man, I want to slap people when I see that term tossed around. Oh, I just used OPM. Get the hell out of here. Ash, the other thing is you're putting your own money in the deal as well. When we had syndications, we had our own skin in the game as well. So it's not just putting investors capital. We have our own capital as well. When you have skin in the game, it changes everything. So when you're saying to yourself, should I do this deal? Well, I don't really care about the investor's money, but at least if nothing else, care about your money. Does it make sense for you? And if it makes sense for you and you're willing to risk your capital, then go ahead, raise OPM, as you'd like to say. (laughs) Gino, the arrow is no longer going up and to the right and the world's not as rosy as it was a few years ago. Are you doing anything differently in terms of IRRs, distributions? Are you taking bigger reserves? Are you raising more capital? Are you anticipating? rates going higher. What are you doing on future deals? Whew, that's a big ass question, Ash. Let me think about that for a second because it's one of those things where we've really refined what we call our buy right criteria. We're looking for assets that are a little bit newer. I don't want the 1960s assets with clay plumbing and aluminum wiring and old roofs because they're a lot of work. They're really priced high still in this market. So our buy right criteria has been really refined. We're trying to buy in areas that have a better median income, $50,000 plus in our Knoxville market. We're looking at townhomes, two bedroom, one and a half bath townhomes. We love those kinds of unit mixes. We're really getting focused on that. And I'm trying to think as far as CapEx, we're doing what we call loan to cost on a lot of these deals. We're going with community banks and credit unions on the front end a lot of times, and we're getting 80% of that loan proceed built into the loan, the rehab proceed. So we're able to leverage that, and then we're able to hold for 12 to 18 months, and then from there, we'll be able to refinance out. But it's important that you raise enough capital and have a conservative budget. Make sure that your budgets are really conservative. And if you're going to do the work, do the work and don't get caught in the model that we had three years ago, where you're going to buy an asset that's a hundred units, fix up 30 or 40 and say material value add and try to flip to the next person. That ship is sailed. That was part of the market cycle four or five years ago. The part of the market cycle right now is valuation through operation not just renovation. Now's the time to find deals that have something wrong materially with them in their operations. That's where you're going to find the value in the deals. So that's the deals we're looking for. And believe it or not, that 1% rule, we like the 1% rule. If you can buy a deal with the 1%, if it's 100,000 a unit and you can generate $1,000 a month in rent post-renovation, that deal looks really good to us on paper right now. If you're able to buy that at current interest rates, I think rates are going to drop in the future. I mean, you saw the 10-year treasury drop like a rock. Now it's bounced back up. But I think long-term, we all have to be honest with ourselves. There's an election coming up. They're not going to raise rates for an election. They're not going to kill the economy. They're going to tamper the economy down. That's my opinion. 
that happened in November of 2022 when rates should have really been pushed up a lot sooner, but they didn't do that because they didn't want to destroy the economy. And then all of a sudden in their infinite wisdom, let's just shock the economy by raising rates at the most rapid rate in history. So to me, are they going to go back up? I don't think they're going to go up. I think they're going to have to really put some umph into this economy because the lowest amount of homes sold since 1995. Think about that for a second. That's painful. Would you do an interest-only loan today that's a variable rate? I would not. There's risk in that because I can be wrong. Rates may go up. I don't want to do that. I'd rather, like I say, go to a community bank or credit union and get a five-year term with these institutions, credit unions, we just did it two-year interest only. And it gives me the ability to have that five-year runway to be able to reposition that asset. And the difference is, Gino, when you go to a smaller bank and you do the two years interest only, that's a fixed rate, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you're doing full recourse on those loans. We're doing recourse. Absolutely. Yes. That may be part of the issue when you're syndicating a deal. But for us, we found that it really works for us because I don't want to get into this bridge debt. You're seeing what's going on with the arbors of the world. You got in at 3%. Okay, it's non-recourse. Great. Now it's nine. You're going to lose it anyway. So non-recourse, recourse, go do another loan in your business. And I understand you. You don't want your investors to take on that risk. But maybe now's the time to revisit the bridge debt idea because we don't have these shutdowns like we did. See, the problem would happen with bridge, no one remembers. In 2021, you couldn't buy windows. It was taking you eight months to get supplies. It was taking you months to get labor. It was taking you months to turn units. And that was part of the problem. It was prolonging all the work. Now, if you're an experienced group, you've got the business plan, you get 100 units, you know that you can execute 100 units. We bought that property in March of last year, 132 units. We're sitting in the end of January right now, 112 of those 132 units have been repositioned. They're all on new leases. We have the ability to do that because we've got the team, we've got the infrastructure. We can make that happen within less than two years. But if you can't and you're just praying to yourself, wow, I may not be able to do that. There's two ways you go broke in real estate. You either run out of time, or you run out of capital. And we've discussed both of those on this show. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. A 1031 exchange is one of the greatest tools to build your real estate portfolio. But before you sell your next investment property, if you want to save thousands in capital gains taxes, please give our friends at 1031 Pros a call. Whether you're an individual investor, title company, or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help you or your clients with their 1031 exchange needs. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros specializes in various types of exchanges like delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states, all while ensuring your transaction is fast, reliable, transparent, and secure. 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and right now, best ever listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash best ever. That's my1031pros.com slash best ever to get $250 off today. Have you heard that Mint, the popular personal finance app, is shutting down? If you use Mint, that's bad news. The good news is that there's an even better alternative, Monarch Money. Monarch gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with others. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. Most personal finance apps are clunky and cluttered with ads. Monarch is different. Its intuitive design makes setup, customization, and everyday use simple and easy. Monarch is also the most customizable budgeting app available. 
You can change your dashboard layout, create custom budgets and notifications, and even invite your partner, accountant, or financial advisor to have a joint view of your finances at no extra cost. Once you try Monarch for yourself, you'll understand why it was named 2024's best budgeting app by the Wall Street Journal. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash best ever for your extended 30-day free trial. 2021, 2020, the supply chain was an anomaly. Yes. But the playbook on multifamily real estate was find an asset, raise the money, bridge debt. Yes. Uh, rents are going to go up. Yes. Cap rates are going down and everybody wins, right? Too many people just got caught. Yes. Too many inexperienced syndicators came into the game and they were driving up the prices on all these properties that you guys are competing on. Yes. And now they're getting slaughtered, right? So Yes. Ash, let me make two points. Number one, it's not the syndicator's fault. It's really the Fed's fault for keeping rates at 0% and making money so cheap when you have private equity entering the space. That's really what ended up happening. And number two, multifamily is a business. It's not buy right, finance right. It's buy right, finance right, and manage right. I have six children. Every one of my children I've raised, I haven't abandoned them and left them on the side of the road. You need to buy these assets and treat them as a business, implement systems and processes. And unfortunately, they've been riding the wave of flipping. They've been flipping, single multifamily flipping. At the end of the day, if you can buy right and sit tight and hold some of these assets for the long term, that's when you create this massive wealth. And that's when you have the respect of multifamily being an actual business. Yeah, but it is the syndicator's fault. I met a girl who six months from leaving her W-2, took some course and raised $10 million for some syndication. Wow. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like <laughs> you just took all these people's money yes, and you're banking on everything going well. Yes. And I can't imagine that went well because that was exactly a year ago. The interesting thing is what happens if she had taken some money and started with a 20 unit or 30 unit because the allure of Instagram and the allure of 10X and the allure of go big or go home, in reality- it doesn't work too well, especially if you've been doing it, you're just starting out. It's okay to start small. We started with a 25-unit little crack den. It was me, Jake, and my brother. There was three of us on a 25-unit deal. Three months later, we bought a 36-unit deal. We didn't start with these massively large properties. We worked our way into these properties. And I think if you have a little bit of patience, you can get to the $10 million raise with no problem. But if you're starting out with a $10 million raise and you don't know the business, there's a lot of risk. It just isn't going to end well. Yeah. And there's blame on the LPs part as well, right? Yes. Why are you giving somebody that much money that doesn't have the track record? <laughs> yes. That's right? a good question. Uh, yeah. They, they didn't cut their teeth. But again, LPs have been very spoiled over the last 10 years. But Gino, back to that. Are you tempering expectations from LPs going forward? Are you reducing their returns knowing that there's all these insecurities out there? We're being really selective with our deals. That's what we're doing. And if the deal isn't going to meet our criteria from a repositioning standpoint, we're not even going to buy the deal. So we're only buying quality deals. All the deals that we had mentioned, these last three deals, if I tell you the price points, you won't believe me. I mean, the deal we bought in March of last year, we paid 75 a door. For a two-bedroom community in Knoxville, it's going to be worth 140 to 150 a door. 
once it's completely repositioned. The deal we bought in July at 105 a door, in-place rents were 800, but reposition rents 14 to 1500. So you're seeing the price points from what we're buying to what we're going to. And we bought this deal in December, was a Litech deal. It was a 96 unit deal that was coming off Litech. There's eight units left on that program. The remainder of those are going to market as we speak. They're going to 1400 bucks. So the price points that we're buying them at, there's really a little bit of downside risk. And we're at the point where we don't have to force deals. I think that's what everyone should take away from this podcast. If nothing else, don't force the deals. The deals will come to you. What is LIHTC? Low-income housing tax credits. How big is your team? Not the education team, but the real estate syndication team. Well, we're vertically integrated. So our property management company has got about 85 full-time team members. And we've grown from Jake cutting the grass and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that to over 80 full-time team members. It's taken a decade, 10 years, and it's been slow and methodical. And and one of the reasons why Jake says we want to be the Chick-fil-A, it's not only the superior customer service, but it's the discipline and the dedication not to outgrow the infrastructure. And Chick-fil-A has been around for what, 40, 45 years? And they opened their first store up in the Northeast back in 2015. So they didn't go out and buy 10,000 units of multifamily in the first couple of years of operation. They were starting small. They were learning systems. And as they learned their systems, they continued to grow. So for us, 80 to 85 team members on the property management and on the education side, there's about 10 team members. So when you say property management, does that include acquisitions, well, everything, right? Investor relations, all of that. Yes. Okay. So look, as an investor, should I be fearful that you've got to feed 85 mouths and you've built this big team, you have to turn and burn deals to keep that machine moving and get all these paychecks out the door. Remember, we don't have that many syndications left. We've only got one syndication left. The majority of the stuff is deals that we own ourselves personally, me, Jake, and Mike. We've been fortunate enough that we use syndication middle of our career. We've sold out of those crystallize the equity and started buying deals for ourselves. So that's the difference between that. But what I would say is if you have that, you just need to look at the operations of these teams. When you're looking at a multifamily, you're looking at the property management side. So if we have a property management company, then we have an asset management. Looking at distributions, when we buy these assets at these price points, they have to make sense. We're making money on every single one of these deals and we're sending out pulses every week. So for us, we've been buying these at real good price points. We don't really sell ash. That's the difference between us and a lot of other syndicators. We'll refi the deal. We'll return the money back to investors or to ourselves and continue along on the deal. Well, for these syndicators that grew very large, very quickly, should investors be skeptical? Because again, they've got this big team of people, right? And the money's got to come from somewhere. And they got to turn and burn deals for that money. And that's why they're turning and burning deals. And I think that's the issue. That's a great question, Ash. When you are a limited partner, you're going into a syndication with operators. Ask the operator, who's your property management company? Oh, you're hiring this property management company. Vet that property management company. Who's on your acquisitions team? Who's on your due diligence team? Who is on your dispositions team? Who's on your underwriting team? Find out how many team members they have to feed. That's great. You want them to be lean and mean. How many people are asset managing? Because you have an asset management component. Then you have an investor relations component. If you see that they're bloated, then to your point, well, where is this happening? And then you have to have your goals align with the syndication company. You may want your money back in two or three years. That's what a lot of investors want. I don't know why. It just drives me nuts. But they want their money back quick. And hey, that works really well. Syndication companies got to churn and burn. They're selling every two to three years. I'm getting my money back. In the syndication's mind, they're like, this is great because every two to three years, I'm making profit on the back end. 
I'm putting the money in another deal. I'm getting more fees. Just be aware of that kind of model where it's like rinse, repeat, sell, put money back. And by the time you know it, it's like a mutual fund. It's like, how much money did I really make? Once I bring in the capital gains and once I bring in fees, am I really, really making money? The syndicator is making money. That's for sure. But am I as an investor making money? Gino, over the weekend, my analyst and I, who's also my nephew, we're sitting at our computers next to each other. And about the same time, we see this email come in from a huge syndicator. And I think on the third or fourth page, there was a slide that said, this is the best time to do interest-only loans because rates are going down. And this kid's only been doing this for a year. And he's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> what is this real life? Like, how... How is this happening, man? Yes. So to me, that's a red flag, right? Anybody who tells you, yeah, rates are going down, do this deal with us. That was shocking to see. Well, is it shocking to see? I think it's interesting. If he knows that rates are going down, can I ask him who's going to get elected for president? Because I'd love to know that one too. Because if he's got that crystal ball, I want to see that crystal ball. That's not called investing. That's called speculating. Let's separate the two. If you're going to tell me something as an absolute, then what's your plan if rates do go up? Oh, then think of that. Great. You're telling me they're not going to go down, but if they do go up, what's your contingency plan? That's what I would ask that group. And if they don't have an answer, then obviously that's how you steer away from that, from that conversation. You're right. That's the perfect question to ask. Hey, that's great. You know what? I hope rates go down too, but you're right. Gino, ask them, okay, what if they go up a half point? What does this do to the deal? Oh, no, they won't. They All won't. Right. <laughs> Guess what? See you later. <laughs> Ciao. Check mark. Yeah. Never talk to that person again. Gino, do your investors like you guys doing full recourse loans on deals? Our employees, they do. That's how we're doing them right now. But like I said, we're buying these things at such great price points and we're turning them quickly enough that within 18 months, we're going from community or credit right to agency. So we're able to do that. And it's one of those things where as you become larger and you're a larger syndicator, you have more reach. Maybe you have less investors to deal with. If you're raising, let's say, $6 million, you maybe you find two or three investors that are willing to say, hey, I'm willing to do recourse on this thing because I know you guys. I know your track record. I've been in a couple of your deals. This may not work with somebody who's starting out in the syndication space early on, but later on, and then you're going to say to them, hey, full recourse, we're taking a lot of the risk as well. We're signing on the debt. There's not going to be as much recourse for you guys because the majority is going to be on our team. You can structure it that way as well. But I think it's really a deal-by-deal -deal basis and sponsor-by-sponsor -sponsor basis. Yeah, but on your deals, if you're doing full recourse, your LPs don't sign on the loan. They're not on the hook for anything. They're not, and no. The reason I brought this up is on a recent raise, this question came up a lot. And all of our deals have always been full recourse because there's no big banks. There's no secondary markets for doing value-add, non-residential commercial, right? Mm -hmm. With your loans, they're essentially commoditized. There's a secondary market that they can trade on. But these investors really like the fact that it's us, the managing partners that are signing personally on the loan. If the deal goes south, I can't say, all right, bank, you can have this one. And investors, sorry, we'll get you on the next one. Yes. Like, we don't have that luxury. Our livelihood or all of our assets are on the line on this. But you mentioned that you can go to agency debt in 18 months. What's the benefit of doing that? Well, going from recourse, then that goes into the non-recourse component. It gets off our balance sheet as well, so we can continue to buy deals, number one. Number two, the terms are so much better. Agency will bring you to 30-year amortizations. 
you probably can get another three, four, five years of interest only on the deal. It used to be that agency had better competitive lower rates. Not so much the case right now. We did an agency loan in August of last year. We had 140 unit scattered site. And what we did on that property was rates had just dropped. We did a 55% loan to value agency loan on this thing. And it had a 5.2% interest rate, 10 year term, all IO. And people may be saying, why would you do 55%? Well, right now, our intention is to hold this asset for the next 10 years. It's in a great location, 55%, very little risk, 10 years of interest only. We love all those components. And I think the rate was 5.2%. So anything around the 5% mark, it works really well. That thing is in a cash flow for us. It's going to be a beautiful asset for the next 10 years. So for us, getting it off of community or recourse, going to non-recourse and getting those terms for us worked really well. And the reason why we got such a low rate was that LTV dropped from 65 or 70. We were willing to take only 55% because we had a lot of equity in that deal. We didn't want to cash out 75 or 80. We wanted to keep enough equity in there where the thing's going to continue to cash flow really nicely as well. Thank you for answering that and clearing that up. Are the smaller regional local banks harder to deal with in agency? Agency's gotten to be really challenging over the last 18 months because they know there's a lot of scrutiny going on in these deals. They're really looking at the operators right now. They want more LTV. They want a lot of docs. And where they've been burned and where a lot of operators have been burned is buying these properties that are older, not enough CapEx. So they're requiring a lot of these people to buy these assets to have enough reserves, which you had just been talking about. Now, the community banks, it's very interesting Two, three years ago, credit unions weren't that much of a big deal in multifamily it's because community banks were great. But when rates shot up and all of a sudden everyone's taking their money out of these community banks and going to treasuries, community banks are having to go to the Fed funds and borrow their rate from Fed funds. So their interest rates weren't as competitive. And the credit union, which is not a bank, they're not there to make a profit. They're there to serve their members. They come in with these attractive rates. Their terms are like a half a point lower. They're willing to go to 25-year AMs. Some of them are even 30-year AMs, two years of interest only. They've become very competitive in the multifamily space to be able to underwrite deals. Yeah, that's great. We've always used them. Do you have to shop multiple small banks or do they all have the appetite for multifamily? That is a great question. You really need to go out and you really need to Google community banks and you really need to want to speak to the decision makers. Some banks like land. Some banks love single family portfolios. Some banks specialize in multifamily. Find the banks that specialize in whatever niche you're in and try to find as many as possible. The, one of the first lessons that I learned in multifamily investing with Jake is everything in real estate is negotiable. So when a bank gives you a term sheet, you look at the term sheet and go, can you do any better? This is what I got. And they will negotiate for your business. What they're looking for is they're looking for demand deposits. They're looking for your accounts, your savings accounts and your checking accounts. If you can bring that over to them and sweeten the pot for them, put them up against each other. And then when you do find one, like we found Mountain Commerce in Knoxville, we love that bank. We've been using them for the last 10 years. That's what you said. Is it easy to work with? Our community bank is so easy to work with. They underwrite deals. They know our appetite. They know our risk tolerance. We'll send them a deal over. They pretty much approve it right on the spot practically. And it's just easy to work with them. But you need to go out and find multiple sources, whether that's credit unions, community banks, and ask them the offers. When I got into the business, a 25-year AM was practically unheard of from the community bank until we started asking. And Lo and behold, once you start asking enough, 
interest only from a community bank, that didn't happen. It just didn't. Then all of a sudden you start asking and then the market comes into play where Freddie comes in. All of a sudden credit unions come in and they start offering different terms. The community banks had to sharpen their pencil. So to answer your question, offer and go out and seek multiple bids on your finance. Yeah. And you've heard the term a lot. Real estate is a people business. That's what community banks are, man. Mm -hmm. You build relationships with the loan officer, the president, everybody in there. And all the decision makers are usually under one roof, yes. which is great. Yes. And once you build that relationship, when I submit deals to our bank, it's literally, here's a contract. We want to close in 45 days. Cool. They don't need to underwrite everything meticulously every time, right? Mm -hmm. They know your track record. There's the two caveats to watch out for. One is a lot of these smaller banks have a legal lending limit. So they can only lend so much money to one person. Make sure you find a bank that has a great point. I love that because that's what happened to us. At one point, we got tapped out from Mountain Commerce because we're too risky for them right now. All of a sudden, their exposure with Jake and Gino is like, time out, guys. There's a little too much loans here. And it's like, oh, we got to go out. So when we roll these loans out from community going to agency, it's going off their balance sheet as well. So we're able to replenish and do more funds from the community bank. That's a great point, Ash. Yeah. And the last one is just that a lot of them will have a geographic limit. Yes. They may only do it in state, in certain counties, or for an experienced operator, someone that they have a relationship with, they will do out-of-state deals for that person. Mm -hmm. But you've got to find that out too, because if you do deals all over, you might need to find community banks all over mm -hmm. or find the right one that is willing to lend in those areas that you invest in. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Listen, great talking to you again. These are just fun, great conversations. I know your time is very valuable. So thank you so much for taking the time out and just having a great conversation with us. Ash, anytime you want me to come on, I will come on and banter about real estate because <laughs> not all syndicators and not all real estate investors are screwing up. There's so many people that are doing so many amazing things in this space. And we really should not lose sight of that because as you say, the media, we always like to focus on stuff that's going bad. There's a lot of really great people doing great things in this business right now. So anytime you want to talk about real estate, you hit me up and I'll be here for you, brother. Well, I think we just get it on the calendar for a couple months from now. Let's just do it again. Gino, again, Love thank it. you so much. Best ever listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.